Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. Before we jump into today's fascinating topic, artificial intelligence, driverless cars, and a pulse-pounding new novel, uh, Unfinished Business from a program a while back, um, we talked with Timothy Weingart, his uh, nonfiction book, The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator. And we got an email from Adele in Castle Valley, who says, I always appreciate your interview show. I recently listened to your interview with Mr. Weingard. Mr. Weingard's narrative of the mosquito's role in our history and mosquito-borne disease is fascinating, though I'm not sure I appreciated his continual reference to she, the offending female mosquito. His account of the 1792 northernmost yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia lives on in legend in my family. My fourth great-grandmother, Sarah Jordan McLeod, lived in Philadelphia during the epidemic. She had a dream in which God told her, Ten thousand shall fall, but it shall not come nigh thee. She took that as a calling to nurse the sick, which she did. She survived and went on to marry Joseph Charles, or Charles who started the uh, St. Louis Post-Dispatch, the first newspaper west of the Mississippi. First in Lexington, then Louisville, Kentucky, where Meriwether Lewis insisted he bring his press to St. Louis, Missouri, in 1809. Her clairvoyance, or technically her uh, clairaudience, and reliving, relieving the suffering of others that we female descendants share is attributed to Sarah Jordan McLeod Charles's dream 227 years ago. Looking forward to many more great interviews. That's Adele in Casa Valley. Thanks so much. Welcome now to Access Utah. You're riding in your self-driving car when suddenly the door is locked, the route changes, and you've lost all control. Then a mysterious voice tells you you're going to die. Just as self-driving cars are becoming the trusted, safer norm, eight people find themselves in this terrifying situation, including a faded TV star, a pregnant young woman, an abused wife fleeing her husband, an immigrant and a husband and wife and a suicidal man. From cameras hidden in their cars, their panic has broadcast to millions of people around the world. But the public will show their true colors when they're asked, which of these people should we save and who should we kill first? That's the plot and brief of The Passengers, the new novel from John Mars. John Mars is author of The One, which is being made into a 10-part Netflix series, as well as The Good Samaritan, Her Last Move, When You Disappeared, and Welcome to Wherever You Are. He worked for 25 years as a freelance journalist based in London, England, where he interviewed celebrities from worlds of television, film, and music. And he's written for many uh, publications and uh, joins us uh, for the hour now. John Mars, thanks for joining us. Hi, Tom. How are you? Uh, very well. How about yourself? I'm good. You've made me sound a lot more interesting than I actually am. <laughs> I'm I'm sure we've underestimated your interesting. Uh, so, <laughs> so find out that's not the case. Well, <laughs> we've got an hour to find that out. So, we'll <laughs> but I'm sure I'm sure it'll be great. Um, so uh, this is this is just fascinating. Um, what got you interested in artificial intelligence and uh, there is issues of social media and mob psychology as well? I think um, the, the, regarding the driverless car side of things, it just stemmed from a conversation that I had with my editor and we were talking about what book I should write next. And um, yeah, we just, just kind of, she asked me about driverless cars and what I know about them. And to be honest, I didn't really know much at all. Um, so I started looking into them and doing a lot of research on Google and YouTube. Um, and then this idea started coming to me of almost like a, like a, a, a rather 
dark reality show almost kind of set in driverless cars and then it became the book that is the passengers uh yeah fascinating did you know much about driverless cars before you jumped in no 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 very very little i mean my friend has a tesla which i've been out in a few times and so i have an idea of what it's like but i think it can only go a certain distance before you have to put your hands on the steering wheel just to you know prove to the car that you're still there But um, no, I didn't really know much about it. Then, uh, then we went over to um, Switzerland to the Geneva Motor Show earlier on this year just to have a look at uh, concept vehicles of autonomous vehicles. And uh, yeah, it's really good. I find it quite exciting. What uh, What are those? So right now, the, just recently you went to Geneva. What, where are autonomous vehicles uh, now? You, you, can you get in one that doesn't have a steering wheel, for example? Not yet. No, they're not completely permitted on roads yet there's a lot of testing going on i think particularly over in america there's a lot of uh trucks and lorries driving around your various states um which don't have drivers behind the wheel Um, and we don't know about them so we're not really very scared but when we do start seeing them i think that's when people will start getting a little bit concerned but over here in the uk there are certain areas where driverless cars have been tested on ordinary roads um i think some of them have had some of them have had um drivers in them but even though there's they're not actually any any kind of control of the car yeah so a big lorry a semi truck with (laughs) without a driver that i think that would scare me um but yeah so this is speculative fiction right but but it's it's just absolutely it's just a bit into the future this is kind of where we're heading do we think yeah, I think we will. I think in the next 15 to 20 years, we're pretty much all going to be in driverless vehicles or we'll all have the option to be in them. I think the the younger generation, it won't seem like anything scary whatsoever. But uh, to people of perhaps my age, um, it's, uh, it's a little bit creepy to start off with. But I know some people will be on board with it and other people will be like, no, over my dead body, am I getting in one of those? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Um if if this just rolls out kind of the pace that uh, technology has been rolling out, younger people might just, well, accept this as part of their lives. Exactly. I mean, my goddaughter is 16 years old, and she showed me something that she's just bought, and it was a, a turntable to play vinyl records on. And she was showing me as it was as if I'd never seen one in my life. <laughs> <laughs> um, she was just so excited about this thing. I think, yeah, I think the, the younger people just accept that technology rattles on at an incredible pace. There's someone like my mum, who's 80 now. She doesn't even have a mobile phone, and she has no desire to ever have one. Yeah. Um, so, uh, in your novel, uh, the, the, the change to driverless cars, autonomous vehicles, has been mandated by the government, I believe. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah they've decided that it's, uh, with, with rising uh, death tolls on roads, it's a lot safer for people to be driving, or sorry, people to be passengers in driverless cars instead. Now, there are benefits, right? Uh, In the novel, you describe scenes where, you know, there's no traffic jams. All the cars are talking to each other. Uh, The the traffic flows smoother. That's one of the advantages to driverless cars. Absolutely. And um, I think think it'll... If, you know, if we do have driverless cars, it's going to be saving us a lot of money as well because a lot of projections are that we won't actually be buying cars anymore. We'll be buying shares in them with other people and we'll be almost almost renting our own cars. We won't need parking spaces because the cars will just take themselves back home or just keep going in a continual loop of the city. Or um, 
there won't even be in grass verges. I mean, our, our roads will be larger because, I mean, at the moment, roads are a little bit larger than cars, aren't they, each lane? So they're just in case of, of accidents and we veer over, but driverless cars won't be veering over. So we'll get a little bit more space back. There's loads of positives to it, and particularly if they're all going to be electric. Uh, you get a lot done during the during the commute as well, and including yeah, uh, you know projection yeah. of whatever you want on 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 the windscreen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can read books. You can sit and watch. You know, you'll have a smart windscreen in which you could watch and catch up on television viewing. I mean, my first five books some were written on trains. So I used to I live in a place called Northampton in England, which is about an hour and a half by train to London. Um, so I would commute each day, and that's where I got most of my writing done. Just sitting with my laptop on my phone, oh, sorry, on my uh, lap, on the, on the train for three hours a day. And now you, you'll be able to do that in vehicles. It won't be that long before you'll be able to drive and write or catch up on work. I mean, it obviously could mean an extended working day for you. So that there's not every, every plus there's a minus. That, that brings to mind that the fact that this is a driver's car is not that much different from getting on a train, right? You get on a train, you're not in control. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what it's like over there, but there is on the London Underground over here. There's a certain thing called I don't know what it stands for. It's a, D, a DLR. Uh, I think it's yeah, a DLR area, and all of those trains are basically aut- autonomous, They're just from from stop to stop. And it's always been like that, and people accept it. So I think, yeah, it's, as you say, people aren't as scared as getting on a train or even getting on a plane. Even though, you know, am I right in saying that most planes are? Uh, on autopilot now, but you obviously have your um, pilot there to take over when necessary. But we're not really scared of those, are we? We just accept it. Yeah, yeah. That, that, and uh, so I guess it is a matter of acceptance. In in your novel, uh, it's, some people are brought kicking and screaming because the government has mandated this. But I, I, I could see where yeah. this could just sort of happen naturally. How would you feel? Uh, Turn the tables I, on you. How would you feel about being in one? Right now, if well, having read your novel, I don't want to get in one, but, uh, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> this is the dark side, right? Um, I, I'd be yeah. interested, but but I'd want a, an override. You talk in the novels, several characters uh, talk about, uh, boy, that you're like an override function, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I don't think I'd want to climb into a car and just see a dashboard there. I would want to see a steering wheel and then want to see a, a brake or an accelerator. You know, even if it's just for cosmetic purposes, it would just make me feel that little bit better. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I, I think I would as well, even if it didn't connect anything, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but it may well happen uh, very naturally. But it brings up a whole host of ethical issues. We've seen some of these in the news. You treat some of this in your novel. Uh, if a computer is making the decisions, then ethics are going to have to be, uh, you know, programmed in. Uh, you, you know, if you Absolutely. have a choice between hitting, you know, a small child or a squirrel, you know, that, that those sorts of problems. Yeah, and we'll be letting artificial intelligence make that decision for us. And it varies. That's one thing I learned. It varies from country to country. So, for example, in, in one country, you may have your car decides that... Um, in the event of a potentially lethal accident, that the person who will be harmed would be a younger person. But in another country that values its older generation more, you know, they they would they would be more looking to save them. It, it all depends on where you are and um, and on, on what your AI has been programmed to believe. 
And so this 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 is a difference, I uh, think, in in kind from the train or the, or the or the airplane that we've been talking about, because in those two instances you do have an override. The pilot in the airplane is, uh, you know, is highly trained. There's a lot of automatic function, but in the end, the the pilot's in control. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But in a driverless car, and especially in you know this this speculative fiction in in the future, um, the the computer's in control, and so I guess that brings up I, I don't know if that's in your mind as you were writing this that um, you know it, w- what are the sort of the end um, you know the, the ends what where are we going when artificial intelligence uh, gains more and more power that we give it right I think then. Yeah, I think then we're heading for Terminator and Terminator Two territory. Right? <laughs> you think that's where we're? <laughs> yeah, where we're headed? It, um, no, I mean, kind I, of the dark side. I, I, no, I don't really. Um, I just, I, I, I don't know where it's heading. If I'm honest, I don't know. I think, I think it's exciting in some ways, and it's quite scary in the in others. I think sometimes we, we as a human race, just need to settle down a little bit and just and just take a look at where everything's going and whether we want our lives to be judged quite literally by artificial intelligence i don't think that'll ever happen though yeah uh let's take a break when we come back i want to have you introduce us to your your characters you have uh, eight people uh just normal day get into the car and uh and then a a voice (laughs) a a very polite nice voice uh, says i've taken control of your car (laughs) and it's not benign you're going to die um, so we'll, uh, pulse pounding here. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll have more from John Mars. The latest novel is The Passengers. More following this break. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. What's it like to look someone in the eyes and decide, do they live? Or do they die? Too many patients. We're running out of oxygen. You're going to murder my father? No, she can't have the oxygen. Turn it off. How could you possibly think that that's a good idea? Did you murder those patients? Playing God on the next Radio Lab. Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio. Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Utah Public Radio's community calendar highlights events across the state, including music concerts, live theater, classes, workshops, art shows, lectures, festivals, volunteer opportunities, and much, much more. Just check out upr.org and head to our community calendar page. There you'll find our user-friendly submission link and the submission guidelines. Thanks for joining us for Access U Time, Tom Williams. We're pleased to have John Mars with us. Uh, he uh, was a journalist for uh, for several years. Uh, now a full time writing uh, books. The latest uh, is a pulse pounder. It's called The Passengers, 
And the plot in brief, uh, self-driving cars, a speculative fiction set uh, into the near-ish future. Eight people get into their cars, um, and then a voice announces that the their driverless cars, autonomous cars, that's important uh, detail, announces that uh, he has taken control. And uh, not only that, you're going to die, he announces. Um, so before we get into the characters, John Mars, uh, uh, wondering what, uh, what the reasons the government gave, at least in your novel, for mandating driverless cars. I think it's mainly road safety and the fact that, um, yeah, there will be hopefully a lot less deaths and accidents on our roads when artificial intelligence is in charge. There will be less human error. Most most accidents are as a result of human error. Um, take the human error out of, out of it and they're going to reduce quite drastically. So I think mm-hmm. that, that's, that's their main reason for wanting this, this to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm wondering, again, before we get into the characters, I'm wondering what your fears are we all have fears of as we get more and more automated more and more online more and more artificial intelligence uh the fear is hacking the, the very thing that happened uh, in, in your novel i wonder what, what your worries yeah, are absolutely. in your personal life yeah i think that i think it is quite scary it just i mean there's been several occasions where i've had to change passwords for i think one was for a bank it's been several times on social media because of because of my details have gone out and they've, they've been hacked. Um, and I think it's only going to get worse and worse. I mean, I was just reading recently about uh, the city government of Baltimore. That was hacked, wasn't it? It was earlier on this year. That was stopping people from buying and selling houses, emergency services, dispatch systems from working. I think, I think, it's, I think it's frightening just how much reliance that we have on technology that everything we do could potentially, in the wrong hands, be hacked. And that, that I find quite frightening. And it is an arms race. We had a program, uh, an episode of this program recently. We talked about that. Uh, uh, you know, people are always going to try to hack in because they they can get gain or or retribution or whatever it might be. And then you know the good guys are always trying to do the defenses. And it's 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 an arms race, no matter what you do. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, let's jump in and talk about the the characters. Start with what was your favorite character to write? Um, I wrote about a character called Sophia, and she's a faded TV star. So she's in her seventies. Um, she's seen, you know, her, her best days career-wise have gone. She's seen a lot of people, a lot of younger people, replacing her. She's desperately trying to cling on to fame, and she doesn't realise for about the first hour of her, of her journey that her car has been hacked, and she thinks she's on a reality show being filmed, and she's quite excited by it because she thinks that this might mean that her career is rejuvenated. So I really enjoyed writing her. That she has possibly the darkest out of all the secrets that these that these other people have, and I kind of based her. I can't say who, but I based her on a on a real character who a real actress over here in the UK that's known worldwide, who I've interviewed a couple of times. But uh, yeah, I can't really say who it is. Unfortunately, I'll be interested to see what the reader's interpretation. Is. Uh, right, right. Uh, she's a very very interesting character. By the way, I haven't mentioned that uh, that detail. I mentioned it briefly. Uh, so cameras are in the cars, and the, the people in yeah. the cars who've, who've been informed they're going to die soon, um, this is being broadcast around the world. Yeah, 
I mean, you, you know what things are like now. You can't do ever, you can't do anything whatsoever without someone having a, a camera pointing at you. So yeah, that's um, that's one of the things that happens throughout the book. Once the vehicles have been hacked, there are internal cameras uh, focusing uh, that broadcast all on all the live news channels and all across social media. Um, and then just where the cars drive past through in the streets, people are videoing them. There are drones following them. There is, there is no escaping for any of these people trapped in their vehicles, either inside or out. By the way, a detail I found interesting. Uh, one of the characters, when she realizes that uh, she's been captured by her car, um, tries to get the attention of people around her. And then a feature of the cars uh, uh, prevents her from doing that, uh, the privacy feature. Right? The, the windows go opaque. Yes. Uh, yes, which, which, is, which uh, again will be will be something else that becomes quite popular. I think. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about that. What about you? About would you, how would you feel comfortable going uh, driving on roads or being a passenger in a, a, an autonomous vehicle and not being able to see anybody else in their cars? I don't know whether that sits comfortably with me. Right, not being able to see out. Although I, I think I'd like the privacy, but there's a dark yeah. side to that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so this uh, this 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 aging actress uh, Sophia. So I want to read this. There's paragraph that uh, hit me because she thinks, at least for a while, that she's on a reality TV show, and th- that has yeah. some verisimilitude. I, I can see this happening, right? Um, so, uh, reading this, she balled her fist to contain her excitement. Her comeback was imminent. This is just after the guy says, uh, "I've got control, and you're going to die." Um, she could feel it. It wasn't going to be by playing aging grandmothers in soaps. It was by being herself, beamed into homes, vehicles, and telephones, and onto tablets every night of the week. So she's excited. Oh yeah, she's so up for it. She, you know, she she loves this idea to start off with. But then gradually she realizes that this might not be the case and she's not in a reality show. And, um, and then she starts to fear when she hears that the secrets are coming out of some of the other passengers. She starts to she has an idea about what hers is going to be and, and what this might mean to, to the rest of her life if this ever comes out. Uh, I, kind of, I kind of enjoyed writing her because I wanted to do like a little bit start off with I think she's, she's quite amusing in her, in her naivety I kind of wanted to have a bit of light in, uh, in a, a fairly dark story mm-hmm. all the characters have secrets right yes yeah yep. that um, was fun. so tell me about Jude uh, I was interested Jude is sort of uh, you know he's not a Luddite but he's, he's hanging on to the older model of, of the driverless car yeah, I mean, he's a little bit difficult to talk about him, I think, out of all of them, because he has quite a few secrets that kind of come out throughout the book. But the, the first one I can say that it comes out, that, it, that his plan that day was to end his life. He has various reasons to, to, to go in that kind of direction, unfortunately. Mm. But as we mentioned earlier on about a jury, there's a, there's a jury made up of five people um, who also help decide who lives and who dies. And one of them just an ordinary member of the public. And one of the people on this jury has actually met Jude in the past. So they have like a link. So she has a reason to want to keep him alive. And she has a, but is, should she keep him alive when he doesn't want to be alive? Or should she choose somebody else, for example, like the pregnant young woman who's in the car and in a different vehicle? So it's difficult, a difficult choice for her and a hopefully difficult choice for the readers as well. Yeah, she's sort of, uh, you know, sort of a stand-in for the, I guess, general public not only in the novel but yes. i guess the reader right what what would yes, you do absolutely if you're placed in this horrible situation choosing who who lives and who dies uh so jude struck me his is a little bit of his backstory is mentioned very early in the book 
uh, he used to love driving, so he doesn't know how he feels about driverless cars. He loved the, I guess the, the the control and the freedom. Yes, yeah, and I think I I I'm a bit torn about driverless cars sometimes because I'm, I'm intrinsically lazy when it comes to vehicles. So I'd quite like to be driven around everywhere and do other things. But then uh, my partner and I were over in America. We traveled around California last year. So for about three weeks, we started off in uh, Los Angeles and drove up to San Francisco. And I don't think that journey would have been the same had we been in an autonomous vehicle. There's something about we hired a Jeep and there's something about driving and all those different terrains and different areas that just made it something a little bit more, a little bit more special. Um, and so, yeah, and Jude isn't overly happy either with the idea of handing over control to something else. And here in America, we we love our cars, especially in the West. I don't know. Yeah. It's going to be a little delayed, I think, getting to autonomous vehicles. <laughs> yes, I know. you. Yeah, I, I've heard several times that you guys are uh, massive fans of your vehicles. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, what about you? What do you think? Uh, uh, interested. I, I think it's going to be, yeah, I, I love my car. Um, and, and there's wide open spaces here in Utah. It's one of the, you know, rectangular States in the West with, with a, a lot yeah. of, a lot of room. But recently I did a lot of driving this summer, you know, 300 miles down to the South of the state, uh, enjoying it, you know, enjoying the drive. Mm. Yeah. And it, and I've only been, ever been to Utah once. I think it's mainly, mainly kind of passing through for, for a couple of days, but it's a beautiful place to drive. Yeah. I, I don't know whether having a, an autonomous car would enhance that because you would be spending more time looking at your scenery and where you're going, or whether it would, or the opposite. I don't know. That brings up the question uh, you, you mentioned earlier in the program, culture, and uh, different cultures imprinting the ethics in, into this artificial intelligence. You know, save the young, save the old. Yeah. Um, I, I wonder if probably different cultures, different expectations would affect the adoption of, of technologies. Yeah, I think so. I think there'll be some countries who are who are more uh perhaps more technologically uh either advanced or who uh mentally have got on board with technology moving a lot quicker who would be definitely up for it and there'll be other countries who will be a lot slower to to adopt it. Uh so you mentioned uh, there's a pregnant woman, Claire. Uh tell us a little bit about yep. about her. Yeah, Claire is a, so she is, I think, about six months pregnant, and she is married, and uh, she works as a teaching assistant, and on her way to work, she discovers that she has been hacked, but she is hiding, yeah, quite a large secret that comes out, and hopefully, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but hopefully when it when it is revealed, I don't think you will see it coming. So when it does, I'm hoping that will make you... I think that's the first of all the secrets that comes out. So I'm hoping that will kind of turn what you think you know about these people on their heads. Uh, yeah, I can say I didn't see it coming. So that good good job there. Okay, that's good. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there's a married couple, uh, uh, Sam and Heidi. Yes, yes, bless them. Yeah, they've, uh, they're both hiding big things from one another. Um, yeah, I, I kind of I quite enjoyed writing them because I tried to put myself in their position and how I would hide secrets from my partner and how my partner might hide secrets from me, and it, it would take an awful lot of lying to do, wouldn't it? I mean, I don't think I'd be revealing too much about it to say that he is his behaviour is a lot worse than hers. Um, yeah, I, uh, 
that was yeah. I, I, that took quite a bit of research to see if see how people can. Because he basically leads a double life. To see how they can lead double life. And there was a lot of stories on the internet about people who've done what Sam has done. It's a lot more common than I than I than I first thought. Hmm. By the way, um, uh, <laughs> hope this is not too personal. The the conversations with your partner make it into the book or. Uh, Post-book, uh, reading about this married couple, did, did that pr- provoke uh, conversations with your partner <laughs> about secrets and such? No, no, thankfully not. No, because my partner, who's also called John, just to make things more confusing, um, we, he's been brilliant with the research for this book. He was so interested in it and so involved in it. And we have a dog, and we live next to a country park, so a lot of a lot of evenings after work, we spend walking the dog around and discussing the characters and discussing the technology and discussing how, the, how these are going to go. But... Um, yeah, thankfully, our relationship is not like the characters that I write about. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's good. <laughs> uh, you have an, an Im- immigrant uh, in the book. Yeah, yeah, controversial subject, something in some countries, particularly with, at the moment, with uh, over in Europe and um, immigrants coming into the UK. So I'm not going to get into all the politics and things, but I just thought it would be interesting to see if you only gave a little bit of information about this asylum seeker, whether your opinion of them would be, well, no, I don't want them to survive. And then later on, when you find out more about them, you realise as the reader, actually, you know what, I made uh, a really rash judgment based on some of my own opinions in real life. So this is interesting. You'd mentioned the reader's experience as you learn about uh, different characters and maybe your attitude toward them uh, shifts. But this this is going on in the novel in real time, right? And there there's yes. uh, the, the 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 hacker the because the moving hand behind this uh, uh, leaves some of the decision making to everyone through social media. Yes, yeah, that's right. And because social media is such a strange place, it's. Um, I obviously it's, it's never happened yet, but I just thought it would be interesting to see what would happen if social media was given the opportunity to save people's lives and to end their lives at the same time, and how and how they would react. And I kind of I, hopefully this book shows potentially the darker side of social media and almost like a, pe- a pack mentality. Um, yeah, I don't think social media comes out of it too well, but. Yeah, I don't think it's that far removed from what might happen one day. Yeah, I, I don't think it's that big of a leap. Um, didn't seem like it to me because uh, you, you, we don't have, hopefully, don't have life and death in our hands. But we're yeah. certainly yelling at each other, and um, and you know, there's yeah. there's doxing, there's trying to harm people by releasing information and that sort of thing, um, bullying. You know, all of that goes on in social media. Yeah. I mean, as I, I, something that I don't get myself involved in. Life is too short to be arguing with people I don't know and I don't give a stuff about. Uh, but a lot of it goes on, and as I say, it's, it's almost like a pack, pack mentality. Um, you can see, you can see careers being destroyed by people when they've got their teeth, they've got their teeth into somebody. You know, it can be a celebrity or it can be a politician. And sometimes it's there, and other times it's just cruel. It's just it's like bear baiting. It's not nice to watch. And part of it is uh, the anonymity of social media seems mm. to give people license yeah. to, to be much crueler than they would, hopefully, than they would be in, in real life. Absolutely. I mean, you wouldn't walk up to someone in a street and criticize what they're wearing or their weight or their hair or their appearance or their politics. But people are more than willing to do that on social media, aren't they? Now, are you on social media? 
yeah, I'm on yeah, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, so I use it quite regularly. I find it useful as a tool for either promoting myself or for talking to readers. I try and try my hardest to respond to everybody who gets in touch with me because these are the people that have made my career. But um, it's also useful, for example, the next book I'm writing involves a human brain. And uh, I, <laughs> I don't know much about the human brain. I barely use my own. So um, I've kind of put a couple of shout-outs on there asking for some help. And almost immediately there are people who know people who are experts in this field. So social media can be amazing like that. It can really help me. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I can connect you. And that's a good thing. Um, I wonder sometimes if it's a real connection, if it's a you know positive connection. I guess it can be positive. Yeah, I think yeah, I definitely think it can be positive. I think when people talk about their Facebook friends or their Twitter friends and they've never met them, I, I you know I find that a little bit a little bit dubious. Yeah, yeah, maybe not. You know, well, obviously not the same as as an in person friendship. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, being on uh, social media, uh, would you be able to give it up, I wonder, the occasion? Would I be able to give it up? Yeah. I have a couple of times deleted the app, uh, deleted Facebook and Twitter from my phone, um, and I think I lasted about a week. And then I think I might you might have used the excuse that I needed to go back online to do a bit of promotion or something like that. Um <laughs> Yeah, I can survive without it. I, you know, I survived, well, 36, 37 years without it before becoming involved. So I can, but I kind of choose not to. I should I should spend less time on it. I, I, know, I know I should, really. <laughs> but there's a nosiness about things, isn't there? There's a curiosity just to see what's going on. Yeah, yeah, that's certainly true. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit, before we go to our next break, about this mob mentality, this pack mentality, as you called it. Uh, which we, we obviously see, and it, it is especially prevalent in social media, and uh, you treat this in the novel. It's, uh, when eight people's lives are put, at least in part, into the hands of anybody on social media, then you kind of have the, have the psychology appearing. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I just I, I find that quite that whole Pac-Man psychology quite quite frightening. Um, I think sometimes it's overblown in the media. I mean, particularly with British tabloids, if they, if if a celebrity, for example, has been criticised for something, they will write an entire story on this based on nothing more than about three tweets from slightly angry people. And so I think that saddens me that uh, the way journalism is going in the UK. I don't know what it's like over in the US. Um, yeah, when it comes to this particular book, though, and Pat Mentality, I think I found that quite an important angle to have in there and. I'd like to think that if I was given the opportunity to support someone who was, you know, to live or to die, that I wouldn't participate in this. I'd like to think that anyway. Um, I wonder, you, you mentioned um, you're, you're a freelance journalist for 25 years. What, yeah. What, what are the things that distress you, or are there positives about where journalism is going in the UK? Um. I think it's quite sad the way journalism is going in the UK, to be honest, and that's basically just based on a lack of funding. So many newspapers and magazines that I've worked for over the years have either now gone and folded because everything is online. Um, There are so many uh, younger people without any journalism training whatsoever just going straight into jobs, rewriting stories that they find on a different news source to use as their own. Um, some of them don't even call themselves journalists anymore. They call themselves copy harvesters, and that really frightens me. 
Um, but so much of it is down to a, like a lack of budget and a lack of investment in journalism now, and that's because newspapers and magazines aren't selling because everyone can get their news for free on the internet. I mean, I still buy a newspaper a couple of days a week, not every day, but the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is I log on to a few websites to see what's going on in the world. There would have been time when I'd wait for the newspaper to come through the door and read that. Yeah, the convenience uh, is is wonderful. Mm. Uh, but but the model, yep. yeah, the funding model may not be there, and that's I don't know where that's going to go. It's it's kind of frightening to think about. Yeah. Uh, let's take another if break. I hadn't have got uh, into, you, go ahead. Sorry, um, I was saying if I hadn't have got into book writing full time, I don't think that I would have had a job by the time I retired in what fifteen twenty years. Hmm. Yeah, that's pretty dire, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um. Let's take another break. When we come back, we'll uh, have our final segment with John Mars. He is uh, author of uh, several novels, uh, including The One, which is being made into a 10-part Netflix series, The Good Samaritan, another book, Her Last Move, When You Disappeared, Welcome to Wherever You Are. Uh, He was a uh, freelance journalist for 25 years. He's written for many publications, and uh, his latest book is A Pulse Pounder. It's about artificial intelligence and mob psychology and social media. It's called The Passengers. We'll have more following this break. Welcome to Science by the Slice. Today's electronics demand safer, more compact, and less expensive batteries. USU chemist Leo Liu and students are studying magnesium batteries, which offer these advantages and may someday replace lithium-ion batteries. A challenge is unreliable performance, which Liu says is caused by impurities in the battery's electrolyte. He and his team discovered adding magnesium powder remedies this obstacle and yields improved performance. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu science. On the next On Being, acoustic ecologist Gordon Hempton. Often I actually hike with another person, and often the hike in is a chattery experience coming from urban lives, etc. But the hike out is hardly talking at all. Quiet is quieting. I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us. Saturday morning at 5 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest is a novelist, uh, John Mars. His latest book is The Passengers. Uh, In the book, uh, eight uh, people get into their autonomous vehicles, a routine day, and uh, then a voice announces that uh, their car's been hacked, they have no control, and they're going to die. Uh, so, John Mars, um, you would expect the authorities, uh, people would uh, be trying to, you know, trying to prevent the deaths of these people. That, of course, happens uh, in in the book. This goes back to that uh, sort of that arms race I talked about, right? That that the the authorities, the police, um, always have to try to keep ahead of uh, would be hackers. Usually, hackers are in it for financial gain. In this case, uh, it's it's power and it's life and death. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I thought it would be more kind of 
be scarier that they're, they're doing, that you don't really know why they're doing this straight away, that they're not doing this for money. I think that would be too predictable. They have their own reasons for it. I, I found that one more interesting to write and to think about. Um, did you do research on what, you know, what the good guys, what the power they have, what, the defenses against uh, hacking and, and, and what you would do in, in a case like this? Um, a little bit, but not too much. I didn't want to, because it took so much research and, and having to write it as well. And when you write a book, you've got like about three or I have about four or five uh, different proofs to get through. Um, I'm on certain deadlines. So I didn't want to get bogged down in, in researching what wasn't necessary for this book. Um, so I kind of settled more on the dystopian side of things to write a really cheery summer thriller. Yeah, yeah, yeah which it is, uh, yeah, uh, the page turner. Uh, I want to uh, talk about a couple of other things, but before we uh, leave the passengers, what was your takeaway having had this experience, all this research, writing the book, um, you know, doing these characters? Um, I think my takeaway would be not to judge I don't think I'm necessarily a judgmental person, but I think inside, I think most people would say that, wouldn't they? But I think inside us all, we do sometimes judge on face value. And so with my characters, I want people to judge them on face value initially, and then I want to surprise the reader by twisting and turning their lives. Um, so I think, yeah, I think I've learned, I learned from myself that not everything is as you first think it is. And also learned that technology can be exciting and it can be quite good fun and it can be for the best. I mean, I know that this is the side of the dark side of uh, the technology that I've written about, but in reality, driverless cars could be a fantastic thing and it could save a heck of a lot of lives around the world. Yeah, there's there's the good and the bad about all the technology, right? We just have to yeah, try to yeah. emphasize the good. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, but then it wouldn't exactly be an exciting story if I had Mary Poppins driving around in a car. With it. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd kind of like to see what you did with that. Uh, maybe <laughs> I mean, we'll see a dystopian Mary Poppins. Maybe um, yeah. it seems like uh, at least uh, the previous book. I'd like to talk a little bit about that. It's a fascinating uh, premise. Sure. The one. Um, yeah. So using DNA to find our perfect match. Yeah, it's kind of it's a decade after scientists discover that everyone has one gene that they share with just one other person. So millions of people have taken a test to find out who, who they're matched with, and that's the person they're guaranteed to fall in love with. So they could be any age, any sex, any location, any religion, but as I say, you are guaranteed that that is the person for you. So my book follows five people who meet their matches. Um, in, in my typical style, not everyone is as first as they seem. Initially, that book was um, was self-published over here. Um, and then it got, in some week, it got picked up by uh, Penguin uh, to turn into an actual book and uh, got uh, picked up by a production company as well. Uh, and couple of years, but they, I believe they start filming for Netflix in the next couple of months. So uh, uh, in the future, fairly near future, be able to view that on Netflix. That's exciting. Yeah. At some point next year, I believe. I mean, I don't have anything to do with it. As far as I'm concerned, I am quite happy for someone else to just take it on and take it in whatever direction they want to go in. 
I've taken the book as, I mean, I never write sequels because I, when I finish a book, I always take it as far as I can and then that's it for me and I've moved on to the next thing. So I'm really interested to see what they do with it, how they're going to turn it into their own vision. And yeah, at some point next year, it should, uh, it should make it onto, onto Netflix. There's a bit of trust, isn't it? Uh, I guess the danger is they'll take it in a weird direction that you wouldn't like or you're just trusting them? I'm just trusting them. Yeah, you're right. It could go in any direction. Um, uh, yeah, I have no idea what they're going to do with it. I'm sure I'll find out in due course before it gets screened. But it's I I, you know, I think that I can write books. I think I can do an okay job of writing books. Um, I know nothing about writing for television, uh, only only what I like to watch myself. So I'm, I trust that they'll do a good job with it. Uh, I'm reading on uh, your website, johnmarsauthor.com, um, one of your posts, I predict the future, and you link to a, an article. <laughs> uh, tell us about this. A speed dating scheme launches in Japan, helping love seekers to find their ideal match by comparing their DNA. This is the, the headline. Yeah, it's frightening, isn't it? Just, <laughs> yeah, there's been a couple of stories like this that have come out since the one, the, the one has come out that people have emailed me with, like, oh, my God, you wrote about this, and they're kind of, well, you know, write about it but um yeah it, it's quite, quite funny that they, that they believe that they can find who you're supposed to spend the rest of your life with based on your dna which is very very similar to the plot of my book so i, I thought I, i've got to include this on my website it, it amused me how does that feel is it gratifying scary that uh, that you I, have I, reached into the future <laughs> if I could predict the lottery numbers next, that would probably be more beneficial for me. But uh, no, it's, it's it's funny. Yeah, it is funny that this little nugget of an idea that you had that just suddenly came to you one day and that you started writing and it's the quickest book you've written. It was like all finished within about four or five months. Um, and that there is a there is organizations out there who believe that that is something that they can accomplish. I don't think they can. can they? That takes all the fun out of it, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. I guess it does. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, date, dating is fun, and it? it is enjoyable uh, to a certain degree. I mean, we've all met some odd people on our dating journeys, but yeah, I think I'd rather. People, the, the, my most commonly asked question is, "Would you take that DNA test? Would you do it?" And I'm like, "No." I think I think people think the grass is greener on the other side too often. And I'm quite happy where I am in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Yeah, would you do it if you got to that point? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so 25 years, a freelance journalist, uh, now established writing books. Um, how did that happen? And what's, uh, how is life different? I think, my, well, I had an idea. It was about 2011, 2012. That I wanted to have a go at writing a book just to, just to see what would happen, really. Um, and, yeah, I spent a couple of years working on it. Um, on and off. I wasn't cocky about it, but I thought, you know what, I'm a journalist. I might have a, like, a bit of an in with publishers. So I, I wrote, tried to, uh, I think, 80 different publishers and agents that I wrote to, and not one of them was interested in it. So I self-published it. It came to the attention of an editor in the end um, who asked if they could turn it into a traditionally published book. Of course, I was like, definitely, yes, I'd love to. And it's, it's gone on to do brilliantly. And then, yeah, uh, around about the same time, someone got in touch about the one, as I mentioned, and the production company. So now I write for two different uh, publishers, one Thomas and Mercer, which is owned by Amazon, and in the UK, Penguin, but obviously it's published around the world in different titles. 
Um, and yeah, life has changed completely. I, I used to be three hours of my day at least was spent commuting down to London, interviewing celebs for a living, and now I just have to walk downstairs, open the curtains in my office and make myself a cup of tea before I start work, which is quite mm. nice. Yeah. It's about 18 <laughs> months, and uh, yeah, I enjoy it. Uh, you interviewed uh, celebrities. What was uh, what was that like? It was. Yeah, it could be great fun. It depends on who you get. I mean, you know what it's like when it's interviewing people. You can get some great, great chats, or you can get some ones where you're having to do all the work and uh, and, and filling in the time. So I had some good ones over the years. A lot of them were the, the American ones who come over, and they're a little bit more old school American rather than your kind of new reality show stars. So you know, Jack Nicholson's, your Johnny Depp's. Listen to me, name dropping. It's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> your Angelina Jolie's, etc. And they're great. You know, they're really interesting. There is a lot of PRs around them, but they were good fun. I enjoyed them. Um, and yeah, it was a good part of the job. But then there was a lot of also a lot of said list celebrities to do as well. It's generally the ones who come from reality shows and who think that they are going to have a long-lasting career, but they don't actually have that much talent behind them to make them last more than about a year. I guess more people can can at least try to live that dream nowadays, right? Maybe not long-lasting, but yeah. reality shows, uh, you can at least be a celebrity for a while. Yeah, I mean, well, say when we were over in the States last year, we I love watching a bit of American television. It, I was actually, we get a lot of your reality shows on, on channels over here, but it frightened me at just how many we don't as well. And there are so many of them, aren't there? Yeah, yeah there certainly are. It seems like, uh, you know, everybody's trying to be a celebrity at least. Or if they're not trying to be a celebrity, then they're trying to be an influencer on Instagram. Yeah, that's right. Now we have influencers, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, is that a job, really? I, it looks like it. Uh, some of them appear to be earning a lot more money than I am. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, probably same here. Uh, just a couple of minutes. I wanted to uh, talk about what what uh, you like to read. Yeah, I I don't really have one style of book that I like to read. I did actually make a little note of this just in case you asked me this because I can never remember off the top of my head. So my latest, I always have like two books on the go at once, so an actual physical book and an audio book. So kind of recently, my favourites, I really enjoyed uh, Delia Owens' Where the Crawdads Sing. And there's a couple of British authors, Taking of Annie Thorne by C.J. Tudor, which is a, is a good kind of British, almost Stephen King-like thriller in places. Then a detective drama, All the Rage by Cara Hunter. And then a thing with a more of a sci-fi twist by Recursion, sorry, Recursion by, by Blake Crouch. I'm about to start The Warehouse by Rob Hart, which I think has just come out over in the States. And that's, uh, I suppose you could kind of, a uh, slightly futuristic thriller. Yeah. Yeah, we'll put those on our list. By the way, just about a minute left, um, I was just doing a reading in our um, interview with your publisher. You mentioned that you grew up obsessed with Hardy Boys books. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Love the Hardy Boys books. Um, I think that's what started my fascination with America, to be honest. When I, was, I ended up, I've been backpacking over over in America for a year, years ago, and loved it. But yeah, it was... Um, yeah, I started my fascination, and it was only as a, an adult that I realized that the author, Franklin W. Dixon, didn't exist. He was a conglomerate of authors, hence writing about 180 books in 50 years. Yeah. I'm a bit disappointed to learn that. Yeah, you you ruined that for me in that interview. I didn't I didn't realize Franklin W. Dixon was a conglomerate. I'll, I'll survive. <laughs> really I'll survive. It'll, it'll, be, it'll be great. Um, but I loved Hardy Boys as well. That's interesting to think, of course, you know, the, the kind of the culture, gleaning the culture from the books wouldn't have occurred to me. Um, but but reading them in the UK, you were you were picking up little uh, cultural cues, I guess. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I loved. I would just demolish those books 
as soon as they came out of the local library or at a shop, if I could save up enough pocket money, I'd be buying his books. Yeah. Only he doesn't exist. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, uh, John Mars does exist. We've been talking to him for the last hour. Uh, the, the latest book is The Passengers. It's a pulse pounder, and uh, it is out and available. And uh, you can find John Mars at johnmarsauthor.com. Uh, John Mars, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tom. Really enjoyed it. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Looking down the barrel of 65, I could hear this clinking sound in my mind and I thought, is that my dentures in a glass or is that a cocktail on a patio in Boca Raton? Join us next time for more True Stories Told Live. This week, stories about identity. That's the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. Saturday evening at 6 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org. At the start of the 19th century in America, with the rise of trains and better roads, the traveler evolved into the tourist. And the idea is, it was easy, relatively speaking, to get from one place to another because you just went to a ticket booth, you bought a piece of paper, and then somebody else moved you through space. I'm Sarah McConnell. Join me for With Good Reason. Tomorrow morning at 4 on Utah Public Radio. Hey, Lael, what's the deal with appetizers? You know, Jen, appetizers are those tasty little bites that whet your appetite for the main meal. Ah, so it's like our UPR segment, Bread and Butter. Tasty little radio bites about cooking, eating, and all the ingredients in between. We should invite the listeners to brunch. Good idea. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. for Bread and Butter, your locally sourced appetizer to the splendid table. Now there's a satisfying meal and all on Utah Public Radio.